Even though we've just had a moment of prayer there together, corporately, let's go before our Lord before we get into the Word. Holy Spirit, as I think about what we're about to do, I am reminded of my complete inadequacy and inability to accomplish anything good in this next hour. My words are feeble and frail, but your words are not. And so I pray that your spirit would take uh, your word and accomplish the purposes for which you have sent it. Pray that you would save the lost and cause all of us to grow in the fear of the Lord. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, if the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us anything, it has taught us and revealed to us that the Bible is true. There are many truths of the Bible that we could identify that have been put on display through this last uh, season since March 2020, but I would suggest to you that a primary truth we've seen with our eyes and heard with our ears is the truth of Hebrews 2.14. And that is the truth that unbelievers are enslaved to fear, and specifically the fear of death. And even though believers have been freed from this fear because of Christ, he has conquered death for us, even as we've been singing about, we've learned over the last 19 months that many believers still are controlled by the fear of death, which includes the fear of suffering and loss as well. According to one study by the National Institute of Health, from January to June of 2019, Studies show that about 1 in 10, so 10%, of adults had symptoms of anxiety and or depressive disorder. In January of this year, 2021, that figure had risen to 4 in 10, or 40%. Over this season, substance abuse has doubled during the pandemic, and suicidal thoughts and calls to suicide Hotlines have more than doubled. Two professors from London South Bank University developed a concept that they call COVID-19 anxiety syndrome, and here's how they define it. This syndrome manifests as the inability to leave the house because of COVID-19 fears, frequent checking for symptoms despite not being in a high-risk scenario, and avoiding social situations or people. Now, before you go diagnosing yourself or somebody else, keep in mind that this is not an illness that someone has. It is a response to circumstances based on the shape of one's heart. One responds the way that they do on the basis of their beliefs, based on what you value and also what you are committed to. According to Proverbs 4.23, the, the contours of your heart determine everything else in your life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Think of your heart like a walled city that has gates at various places. 
flowing in and out of the city are imports and exports uh, of goods and culture and morals. However well-intentioned one might be to start with in establishing a city like that, over time, the quality of the goods and culture and morals will be determined and shaped by the influences that are allowed in the, in the city or the changing viewpoints of the residents as they are influenced by other things. Well, and so it is with the heart. What, what beliefs and what values and what commitments are allowed to influence the heart will ultimately determine a person's choices and lifestyle. And so Solomon there wisely counsels us to guard our heart, to watch over, protect it. One way or another, our hearts have been shaped over the last two years. And it's not just COVID, obviously. Uh, Ethnic tensions, political strife have created ample opportunities for our hearts to be shaped. Our hearts have been shaped by what we see on the news, which we interpret based on our own life experience. Our hearts have been shaped by social media and opinions that are often expressed in uh, ungracious and divisive ways. Our hearts have been shaped by griefs and sorrows and the complex emotions that come when you lose a loved one or you're going through your own physical trials. Your heart has been shaped and my heart has been shaped. The question is, through all of these heart-shaping events, as you look back over the last two years, has your heart been shaped in such a way that it aligns closer to God's heart or further away? Does your heart reflect more of the, the thoughts and values and commitments of the world of unbelievers, or does it reflect more of the mind and the affections and the will of God. The Spirit urges us with these words in Romans 12 too. You're familiar with these. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What direction has your heart moved recently? Has it moved closer to the Lord or has it moved further away? Have you been conformed? Or have you been transformed? In short, after 20 months of a pandemic and significant social and political unrest, we could ask the question this way. Do you fear the Lord today more than ever or less than before? Well, last week we began answering this question. Do you fear the Lord? And it's been my purpose to present the biblical teaching on the fear of the Lord in such a way that we can not only examine our own hearts, but that we also have a direction on how to grow in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the decisive factor in how you will live your life. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which means it sets the trajectory and it permeates your pursuit of every other kind of knowledge. And then Proverbs 9.19 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which means it's the basis of on which every decision is made. If we want to identify the etiology or the explanation for the decisions that we make, if we want to backtrace our choices to understand what path we took to get there, at the root of all of our actions and choices is the fear of the Lord or the lack thereof. 
Now, it's, it's not a binary option. Either you fear the Lord entirely in your life or you don't. Uh, unbelievers can't fear the Lord, or at least not in the right way. They ought to be terrified of the Lord, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh, the believer, on the other hand, fears the Lord in degrees, in degrees. Typically, when someone defines the fear of the Lord, as we mentioned last time, what you get is less of a definition and more of a thesaurus entry. Now, to fear the Lord is to reverence or to respect or to worship the Lord. And, of course, those are true statements. But what does it mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? And here's where I propose my definition as I gave you last week. The fear of the Lord is the heart of man being shaped by the heart of God and then living in according to that. The fear of the Lord is the heart of man being shaped by the heart of God and living in accordance to it. Every believer begins their life with a degree of the fear of the Lord. Ephesians 4.24 says that our new self, which we receive, that, that new heart that God gives us at salvation, that in the likeness of God, it's been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are new creatures in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So, so God's regenerating work of salvation accomplishes a fundamental reshaping of the heart that enables us to fear the Lord. And it's out of that fear of the Lord that a person repents of their sin and believes on Christ. And from that moment on, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit aims to increasingly shape the heart of the believer into the heart of God. In the words of 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That gradual change will not be complete until we see Christ face to face. And then the image of Christ will be fully formed in us and there will be no vestiges or shadow of sin. So while we remain in this life, the daily moment by moment circumstances of life are opportunities to mold our hearts. And we will either be conformed to this world or we will be transformed into Christ likeness. And the more we become more like Christ, the more we will fear and worship the Lord. Well, in order to answer this question, do you fear the Lord? We've been working through three questions, three primary questions to examine our own heart to discern if we're fearing the Lord. First, we began looking at, is my heart shaped by God's mind? Second, is my heart shaped by God's affection? And third, is my heart shaped by God's will? And again, the the mind and the affections and the will are the three chambers of God's heart and ours as well because we're made in His image. Take your Bible and turn over to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. Last week we began, again, considering, is my heart shaped by God's mind? And specifically, is it shaped by what God knows? In other words, his revelation about himself and this world, as we grow to understand it, should define how we think about everything and then work itself out in the way we live. Here in Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 4, we find this counsel for all of us, but especially for young people. 
It says this, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry out for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. If you want to discover the knowledge of God, if you want to grow in the fear of the Lord, spend yourself by searching out the mind of God as it is revealed through his word. The, the terms that Solomon uses here convey a level of desperation and intensity that's required in this search. When someone seeks for silver or hidden treasures, that's, that's not a casual, passive endeavor. No, that pursuit is costly. It requires massive investment. It requires blood, sweat, and tears. It's a relentless effort that doesn't stop once that first nugget is found. And so to that end, last week we really just touched the surface. I wouldn't even say we scratched the surface. We just touched the surface of what it means that our hearts should be shaped by the reality of God's sovereignty and God's justice and His love and also by eternity. And so if you missed that message, I would encourage you to, to go back and consider that is a starting point uh, on whether or not our heart is shaped by God's mind. Now, as we continue to move forward and consider God's affection and God's will, understand that these are not utterly distinct aspects of God. These are not chambers that are walled off to each other without the ability for the blood to flow back and forth. No, there's, there's a whole lot of overlap, and so we don't want to take the metaphor too far. But we want to turn our attention now to the second question, is my heart shaped by God's affections? Is my heart shaped by God's affections? Affection is the chamber of the heart that contains one's desires and one's values. And as a result of that flow emotions. And so God's affections primarily refers to what God values and what God desires. As a moral being, God does, doesn't just know reality as bare facts, as if he's looking at a spreadsheet of meaningless data. He makes value judgments on what's good and what's evil. What's right and what's wrong? What's better and what's best? What's of greater value and of lesser value? God has longings. God loves and God hates. All of that he does in a way that's consistent with his character. You know, often when we make decisions in life, we're wrestling with, is this biblically permissible or is this biblically prohibited? And that tends to be the limitation of how we think, how Scripture informs our decision-making process. And so when we find ourselves, as we often do as believers, in situations where we have two biblically permissible options, we feel stuck. I don't know what decision to make because Bible doesn't prohibit me from either of these options. Well, what we can do in such moments is consider, well, what does God value? What is valuable to God? And see if that helps in our decision. And in my experience, that tends to clarify things rather well. In Matthew 9, 11, the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples this question, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? You see, in their distorted religion, it was morally wrong to hang around people that they considered would defile their religious purity. 
Now, Jesus overheard their question and responded right away, saying, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The heart of the Pharisees was shaped by this man-made tradition and religious standard. They had so narrowly focused on the call of God to holiness that they excluded God's passion for compassion towards sinners. They weren't, they weren't wrong to elevate holiness, but they were wrong to elevate it to the exclusion of God's heart of compassion. In the same way, you and I often live and make decisions on the basis of what we believe to be godly desires and values. And as we grow in Christ, and as we make significant decisions, we should consider whether the values we're considering or the decisions that we're needing to make should involve other values in God's heart that we're not giving adequate attention. Now, there's no way that we can obviously cover all of what God values, but I do want to suggest what I believe is one value in God's heart that is commonly neglected in our lives, but which should shape our hearts so that we would fear God rightly. Namely, the value of knowing Christ. The value of knowing Christ. In God's economy, He places a great value on knowing Christ, on us knowing Christ. He values this above our health, above our wealth, above our family and other relationships, above our achievements and accomplishments, indeed above everything else in in this world. In fact, knowing Christ is of such supreme value from God's perspective that it is the very definition of eternal life. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so we can ask ourselves, is my heart shaped by the value of knowing Christ above all things? Now, knowing Christ, by knowing Christ, I'm not referring to becoming a Christian, getting to know Christ for the first time. But rather, knowing Christ is having an increasing and deepening understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and therefore growing in one's relationship to Him. When the Father sent His beloved Son to live a sinful life, a sinless life, forgive me for that, a sinless life and die as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of sinners so that they could be reconciled to God, it was not His intention that we would view Christ in a utilitarian kind of way. You see, those Jews who would make sacrifices viewed their sacrificial animals, lambs and goats and and bulls, in a very utilitarian way. They understood the value of this life they were about to kill for their sin. They understood the significance of what was going on. But once that animal was dead and gone, they didn't mourn for it. They didn't grieve for it. They, They didn't have any kind of relationship with their sacrificial animal. Sometimes we think about Christ in a very utilitarian way. We're thankful for his death, burial, and resurrection. And you know what? We do look forward to meeting him someday. But this is no different than we might think about any other person of great accomplishment. Turn over in your Bible to Philippians 3 where we had our scripture reading. Sometimes as we talk, the the way we talk sounds as though we're as eager to see Paul or Moses or Mary in heaven as we are to see Jesus Christ. 
And if there's any truth to that in our own hearts, the reason for that is because we don't know Christ the way we ought. And the reason we don't know Christ the way we ought is because we don't value knowing Christ. Growing in the knowledge of Christ is not as valuable to us. And so he's just one among many people that we appreciate. But that's in stark contrast to the Apostle Paul, who wrote here in Philippians 3, 7, 11, under the inspiration of the Spirit, which, by the way, is how you know this is one of the values that God wants us to have because he inspired Paul to write this. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for Christ, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my, my Lord, who, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Listen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul valued knowing Christ above his academic credentials, above his ethnic and genealogical credentials, above his religious zeal. He valued knowing Christ about, above his health and well-being, even above his very life. Put simply, he was willing to give up everything for the sake of knowing Christ. Earlier in Philippians 2 is the well-known passage where Paul describes how Jesus came from the heights of eternal glory to the depths of human poverty, even ultimately death. Christ gave up everything to save us. And so imitating his Savior, Paul was willing to give up everything because he held imitating and knowing Christ to be of inestimable value. For Paul, knowing Christ was not about having an encyclopedia of information about him. Here in verse 10, he defines knowing Christ as experiencing the power of his resurrection. And he says that the key to accessing that power is to be conformed to his death, which means to suffer like Christ suffered. Now, this attitude of the value of knowing Christ is what should characterize all believers. None of us can say, well, that's nice for you, Paul, but that doesn't apply in my life. No, the, this, this is the nature of kingdom living as defined even by Jesus himself. Listen to these two very brief parables from Jesus in Matthew 13. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So let me ask you, how much value do you place on knowing Christ? One way to assess the value we place on knowing Christ is our attitude and commitment to the church. Why is that? Because God is so committed to, growing, to us growing in the knowledge of Christ that he designed the church, the body of Christ, to serve that distinct purpose. 
Consider the words of Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness which belongs to Christ. The church is so essential to our individual growth that in verse 16, he says that this only happens as every individual part is working and contributing and functioning according to God's design. When we isolate ourselves or when we limit our interaction with the body, we hinder our own ability to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And frankly, we limit the church's ability, everybody else's ability to grow in the knowledge of Christ. So the more we value knowing Christ, the more we will engage in the life of the church. Now, there are many things which God values, of course, in addition to our growing in the knowledge of Christ. The good news is that as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, God cultivates in us the desires and values that he would have us to have. That's the meaning of Psalm 37, 4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so again, we must ask ourselves, is my heart shaped by what God values? Is my heart shaped by what God, what values God does not have? Well, the third question in our journey is, is my heart shaped by God's will? Is my heart shaped by by God's will. The will is the chamber of the heart that primarily contains one's commitments and one's actions. God puts his will on display, not just through the commands that he tells us, the imperatives that he sets forth in scripture, but more fundamentally, he reveals his will for our lives by the way that he acts. In fact, God's commands are simply a reflection of what he himself is committed to you to as seen through his actions. So we can ask ourselves, is my heart shaped by God's commitments? Is my heart shaped by God's actions? If you've ever wondered why so much of the Bible is historical narrative, the answer is because God wants you to know how he has interacted with his creation and especially with his people. He could have easily and simply cataloged his his attributes and his character for us and then just left us to believe and trust and understand what that means. And our Bibles would be a whole lot smaller. But he gave us these inspired and inerrant historical accounts to show his attributes and to show his character. And what's more, the Son of God came in the flesh and showed us what it looks like for a human being to live out the character and the attributes of God. Jesus lived the full human experience except for sin and put the panoply of God's character on display through his words and his actions. He showed what true love and righteous anger and godly sorrow and gracious speech and loving your enemies look like, among many other things. And therefore, when God commands us to live according to his standard, it's not a list of cold, stale, thoughtless commands. No, God's commands, properly understood, take on the character of warm-hearted 
imitation. If you're there in in Philippians 3, turn back to Philippians, excuse me, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Back a few pages. Look at how this principle is conveyed in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Paul writes here, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When you love someone who has hurt you, it shouldn't be out of this heart of reluctant submission to divine authority. Well, God told me to love my enemies, so I guess that's what I have to do. No, it should be the overflow of a heart that recognizes that you have been loved by Christ when you were his enemy. And that overflow moves on to your enemies and they experience that same kind of love. Or look at the end of chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. These commands to be kind and tenderhearted and forgive are not cold commands by a God who doesn't know what it means to be sinned against. No, they are commands that reflect the way that God has already treated us. Or consider the remarkable act that Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. He knew that that was the night that he would be uh, taken into custody and go through illegal trials, be tortured and ultimately murdered by corrupt and wicked leaders. And yet instead of insisting that his disciples kind of focus on him and, and minister to him and care for him, he performed the most humble act of service by washing their feet. And then when he finished, he said this in John 13, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. When Jesus calls us to humbly serve one another, He does it on the basis of how he himself has humbly served us. Or consider 1 Peter 2, where Peter calls Christians to submit to evil authorities, even if it leads to suffering. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. If God gave us this command and nothing else, hey, when you're suffering, don't say anything. What we would probably do is find loopholes and workarounds. Because God surely doesn't mean that he wants me to suffer, does he? Or even if he pointed us to someone else and say, hey, look at this random Joe Blow who did this amazing feat. That would be a helpful model, but there would be no personal motivation for, it, for us to do it ourselves. 
But not only did God provide a model, he himself is that model, and he modeled it while he was accomplishing our salvation. His example of suffering under the hand of wicked rulers, of not retaliating, of not reviling, that is what rescued you from your life of sin. And so now that we have become dead to sin and alive to righteousness, we have the privilege and the joy of imitating him. I think you get the thrust of what I'm saying here. God's commands are a reflection of his character as put on display by Christ as he accomplished our redemption. And because we have been the infinite recipients of his blessings, through Christ's example, our hearts should be shaped in a way that creates the desire to imitate him. That's why Jesus says, my commands are not burdensome. It's because when we understand his commands rightly, we joyfully want to follow him. But I want to offer you one more example in this vein that is at the root of the Christian life. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Jesus taught that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, these two commands fulfill the law and the prophet. So if you can just love God with all of your being and love others the way that you already love yourself, you don't need any more commands, just do those two things. Simple, right? Well, I would suggest to you that there is one command that Jesus gave that is the seed in the ground that grows, out of that seed grows these two commands and therefore everything else. We find that seed here in Luke chapter 9. And for the sake of context, let's start with verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, who do, you, who do people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Now pause there. Jesus knows where he's about to take this conversation, but he, he sets up the groundwork for what he's about to say by establishing who he is. He's not some reincarnated prophet. He's not John the Baptist who had only recently died. He is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king of Israel. He's David's Lord and Israel's God. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, eternal father, as he's called in Isaiah 9. Now skip to verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoa, wait, what? What do I have to do? You have to live every day dying to yourself. Every day you need to crawl up on that altar and sacrifice yourself to me. I am your king and I have the right and authority to command this of you, so you must do it. Now, if that's all we had in this text, you can feel how cold that command would be. You can feel the distaste of authoritarianism in your soul, can't you? Well, praise God, our 
Our God is not like that. Jesus Himself is not that kind of King. Now think about verse 23 in the context of the verses that we skipped. Go back to verse 21. But He warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man, me, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When Jesus says, follow me, he's not saying, do what I tell you to do. No, he is saying, come on, walk with me. Let me do this first, and then let's do this together. The only way to love God and love others the way that we ought is if we first follow Christ in dying to ourselves, our preferences, our conveniences, our perceived needs, our rights and our expectations, and even sometimes at the risk of our health. Jesus lived in the eternal glory with His Father. They dwelled in unapproachable light. Their environment was pristine, perfectly pure, and not a spot of sin or stray germ of imperfection was around them. But because of His love for the Father, and because He was committed and agreed with their eternal plan to save sinners, Jesus left that place of safety and comfort and came to this sin-sick, germ-infested world. He made himself vulnerable to suffering so that he could demonstrate his love. He, He didn't stay in heaven and just call out the gospel from the skies. No, he walked on the earth and proclaimed the gospel. He didn't just throw lightning bolts down and heal people from heaven. No, he personally touched the lepers and the lame and the dead. He didn't hologram himself into this world and walk among his people. No, he took upon himself a weak and death-prone body and hung around the rejected members of society. And ultimately, he died for us, taking our punishment upon himself. What God does that? What God of any religion, or rather what religion has a God that doesn't just dispense commands from his throne, but actually walks among his people and models for them everything that he commands, even to the point of his own death. Other religions don't talk about imitating their God because their gods aren't worth imitating. But not our God. We worship a God who made us in his image, and though sin distorted that image, he, when He saves us, He is working in us to restore that image so that we would become more and more like Him. And when we do imitate Him, you know what happens? People are amazed. When husbands and wives are faithful to each other over the long haul, the world applauds. When a believer imitates God in forgiving one who has committed a heinous act against them, the world stands in awe. When a Christian responds to the hatred and violence coming toward them with compassion and service, ministering to their enemies, the world is astonished. 
Again, we ask, is your heart shaped by God's will? Do your actions and your commitments reflect the way that the world operates and responds to challenging situations? Or is your heart shaped by how God has demonstrated his commitments and his character through the life of Jesus? Do you see his commands on your life as either mere suggestions or perhaps harsh demands? Or do you see them as the call to walk in the footsteps of your Savior? Well, Acts 4 is a time not long after Jesus ascended into heaven and the Spirit came and gave birth to the church. The apostles were causing no small stir in Jerusalem with their preaching. Thousands were believing in Jesus as the Messiah and lives were being transformed. And so the Jewish leaders had Peter and John arrested and brought before them. And after interrogating them, Luke gives us this insight into the hearts of these Jewish leaders. He writes, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And then after being ordered not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus, Peter and John responded saying, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to uh, obey you or God, you be the judge. Their encounter with Jesus molded and shaped them. Their hearts were filled with the knowledge of God. Their hearts valued knowing and spreading the knowledge of Christ more than their comfort. Their hearts were committed to serving the Lord no matter what the consequences would be. You could put it this way, they feared the Lord in that they knew God was infinitely worthy of praise and glory and service. And in fearing the Lord, they feared nothing else. Last week, I recounted the different choices that we all have made in response to COVID-19. And again, I affirm that my purpose is not to say that having a right fear of the Lord leads to everybody making the same choices. But I do want to challenge you to examine your own heart. Whatever your choices are, and consider whether your choices have been driven by a heart shaped by the world's way of thinking, the world's values, and the world's commitments, or whether they've been driven by God's mind and God's affections and God's will. And wherever you find your, your thoughts and desires and decisions that are not like God's, I would urge you to repent and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Rejoice, knowing that forgiveness and grace is found at the foot of the cross. All of us are unlike God. We don't fear the Lord the way that we should. There are many ways in which we are yet unshaped by God's heart. We all fear the Lord in degrees, not in whole. Not one of us has been perfected, and so we close with the words of 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we grow in His grace and knowledge, we will grow in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus Christ, we have considered ever so briefly the reality of your life and how you demonstrated a right fear of the Lord as you submitted to your Father, as you did all things for his glory, as you suffered, as you loved, as you gave. And we confess that we are not like you the way that we want to be. We confess that there are times when we elevate our comfort, our hopes, our expectations, our desires. We don't always think the way we ought to think. We believe things we shouldn't believe. We don't know as much as we ought to know. We are not committed to the same things that you're committed to in every case. And we thank you that despite these realities, you are patient and you are gracious. And you do not hold that against us. You know our frame that we are but dust. And so you forgive us as we come to you for forgiveness. And you empower us by your spirit to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So may that be true of us even today in this coming week. May we reflect more of Christ's glory. May we fear you a degree more this coming week than we did the week before. And now as we transition to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ, may you be honored in this remembrance, in this celebration and worship. In Christ's name, amen.